I wonder how many of you have taken down the Christmas decorations already? It's really tempting, isn't it? The 12th day of Christmas doesn't fall until the 5th of January. So those of you Christmas Puritans like me won't be packing anything away until the 6th. And we'll view those who jump the gun a little Scrooge-like. But when the 6th falls on a Wednesday, perhaps a more gracious response would be for me to understand that it's far more convenient to do all of that at the weekend. Some may look at the passage we've had read this morning and say, Steve, that's not a very Christmassy reading. Perhaps you have moved on from Christmas already. And it's true that the passage that I've chosen for this morning isn't a typical Christmas or even Epiphany reading. But I hope I'll be able to persuade you why I felt it an appropriate post-Christmas message, especially in the times we are currently living through. Christmas, as you all know, is all about the birth of Jesus Christ. Although at the time that name was far from anyone's lips. Most Christians are so familiar with the name Jesus Christ that it is easy to forget what a hard-won combination that was at first. Based on evidence that can be found in the New Testament, it was many years before the job of Christ was widely connected to Jesus. And even then, there was at least one other contender. Many believed John the Baptist to be the true Messiah of God. According to Luke, John's birth was also a miraculous one announced by the angel Gabriel. John was descended from priests on both his mother's and his father's sides, which meant that he wasted no time at all as a woodworker's apprentice. And John was an evangelist from the word go. While Jesus sat down to suppers in towns with people who drank too much and laughed too loud, John lived an austere life in the wilderness with his equally austere disciples. If he found something to eat, he ate. If he didn't, he didn't. He avoided alcohol altogether, the same way he avoided anything that might soften the sharpness of his focus on God. Everything about John set him apart as a holy man. His way of life, his clothing, and above all his message, No one had heard anything like it in 500 years. Ever since the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the land of Israel had been passed from one superpower to another, from Greece to Egypt to Syria to Rome. The promised land had become a tarnished trophy handed from one empire to the next. The chosen people had become a conquered people whose value lay chiefly in their ability to pay taxes. And what was missing in all of this was any reaction from God. And his people must have wondered where he had gone. Where were the prophets who had once spoken for God to the people? Where was Nathan opening King David's heart to the full impact of his affair with Bathsheba? Where was Elijah calling down fire from heaven so that no one who saw it could doubt the power of God? And where was Amos? shouting himself hoarse about God's disgust with Israel's obscene wealth and empty religion. 
Those voices had been missing in Israel for a long time when John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, sounding like God's own megaphone. Finally, someone was speaking God's language again, talking about sin instead of profit, about repentance instead of compromise. John was not interested in helping people become more productive members of society. He wanted them poised to enter God's kingdom and he was happy to condemn anyone who stood in their way. John publicly criticised King Herod for being an all-round evil man. He let the Pharisees and Sadducees have it for teaching religiosity instead of righteousness. He promised everyone that God was coming with a sharpened axe to cut down the trees that don't bear good fruit and clean up a world that had become littered with dead wood. John's gospel was a refreshing one that won him a lot of converts. And then John met Jesus and things moved into a high gear. Finally, it looked as if things were getting off the ground. Finally, God had sent the chosen one. Surely it would not be long before the Messiah established justice on the earth. At least that was the hope right there at the beginning. And then Herod's soldiers came with a warrant for John's arrest and the man who had lived as far as he could from human corruption found himself caged in Herod's basement. The good news was that he was there alone. Jesus was still free, still advancing the kingdom, which may have been the only consolation John had. You see, somehow John had kept up with what Jesus was doing. John's disciples found ways to get messages to him and to carry messages back. The early reports of Jesus' ministry were promising, healing people, delivering others from spirits, signs and wonders. That was good. That would get people's attention for the, for the big announcement. When Jesus finally declared God's judgment, that would give him the authority he needed. Only the big announcement never came. And while John sat muzzled in jail, all Jesus did was play doctor to some very marginalised people. Lepers, those possessed by spirits, hemorrhaging women, even a Roman soldier's slave. What kind of witness was that to God's power? How was that going to help anyone know right from wrong? Of course, it's not really possible to know what John was thinking without resorting to fiction. We do not know what went on inside his head while he sat in Herod's dungeon. We do know that Jesus never organised a protest outside the jail or did anything else to try and get John released. There are signs that John had questions about Jesus' spiritual practice. And we know that John himself finally sent Jesus a message. Are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? It is hard to comprehend the disappointment in that question. Was I wrong about you? I'm definitely wrong about something. 
If you know who you are, please just say so. If you're not the one, then we need to reopen the search process and fast. Only Jesus would not just say so. Instead, he turned John's disciples around so that they were not looking at Jesus, but, but at some of the people who followed Jesus around. It was a diverse and unorthodox group for sure, but they were more whole than they had ever been in their lives. They knew they were the lucky ones too. There were plenty of blind people who were still blind. Plenty of dead people who were still dead. Jesus could not get around to everyone, but he had gotten around to them. And there was not one doubt in their minds who he really was. Go and tell John what you hear and see, Jesus said to John's disciples as they took in what they saw. The blind have received their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. It was Isaiah's prophecy come to life, not the part that John had been focusing on about God's coming with vengeance, with terrible recompense, but the other part about the lame leaping like deer and the tongue of the speechless singing for joy. And as a loving PS to the one who had baptised him, Jesus added this other beatitude at the end. And blessed is John for handling his disappointment in me. John had wanted a tidal wave of a Messiah, someone who would be impossible to miss, who would make a clean sweep of things, who would witness to the all-powerful righteousness of God. What John got instead was a steady drip of mercy from a man named Jesus, in whom plenty of people saw no Messiah at all. And as far as anyone knows, John died unconvinced. He may well have died wondering who Jesus was and what kind of joke God had played on him to have made him the messenger for such a lacklustre saviour. I wish I could tell you that Jesus' own death and resurrection changed everything. That once word got out what God had done with him, everyone saw the light and turned towards it on the spot. I wish I could tell you that today, everyone believes in him, that is, believes that he wedged his body in the door between heaven and earth, and that God through him is at work in this world right now, bringing in the kingdom with power and might. That's what I believe. And I know it's what many of you believe too, Maybe not everyone believes it, but at least you do. Don't you? Well, if you have one doubt in your mind, then I will tell you the truth. Sometimes I would give anything for one firebolt from heaven, for one blast of raw power from a mighty God who would sweep my and everyone else's doubts away forever. But that's not what I have. What I have instead is a steady 
drip of mercy from the followers of a man named Jesus who is still playing doctor to a lot of marginalised people in this world. I don't know if any of you saw the BBC News reports of the vicars in Burnley who were serving the poor through the worst the pandemic had to offer. If you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to look it up. One of the vicars said, I go into houses and I sometimes have children ripping the bags open to get at the food as I am carrying them through the door. And it's not all right, that. It's not all right. He said, I visited a family who had no carpet, who had no settee, who had no gas, who had no electric, who had no food. That broke my heart because nobody cared for them. They'd fallen through the cracks. He said, I love the poor because I know I am the poor. And as long as I breathe, I will serve the poor. And one recipient of the vicar's care said, every time you get any money, it disappears as fast as you've got it. The bills swallow it up. And with the coronavirus as well, with the reduction in wages, it's not easy to cope. But at least now I can eat. Another said, I suffer from depression and this coronavirus has made it 10 times worse. If it wasn't for all these, I'd basically be dead. And one lady who'd visited the food bank and broken down in tears about her daughter who had committed suicide was asked what would have happened to her without the support of the vicars. She replied, me? I'd probably be where my daughter is now, up there. I'd probably have taken my own life if it weren't for him. Perhaps not all have eyes to see, but when I look around those vicars, I see those who need healing being healed. I see good news being brought to the poor. I even see those who are basically dead, finding new reasons and new means to live. These vicars are no lightning bolt from the sky. They're just drip, drip, dripping small acts of mercy. And there are others too. I've recently had the joy of getting to know a young woman from another local church called Joe, who four years ago on New Year's Eve decided that she wanted to do something to help children who are vulnerable and in desperate need of temporary care. She sat down to work out the practicalities and within two weeks, she'd moved into a place with a spare room and has since fostered eight children and provided respite care for many others. She'll never see the full impact of the sacrificial kindness she has shown, but young lives are literally being given a new hope through her and others like her. Then there's the church in Preston that have delivered 2,000 flowering plants to NHS workers, prison workers and care home staff. Or Oasis Waterloo that set up a friendship line to support those anxious or isolated during the pandemic crisis. All those Christians behind the Southend Emergency Fund, giving small grants to those in most critical need in our very own town. I could go on and on, drip, drip, drip.
in the big scheme of things, these are not big lightning bolts out of the sky stories. They are small stories in which only a few people at a time are saved. And meanwhile, we have to be honest, there are many others who go on wondering if God has abandoned them. They listen to the bold claims of faith. They look at the modest returns. Who can blame them if they send their own message to Jesus? Are you really the one in whom I'm supposed to be putting my trust? Or should I be looking for someone else? And the only way I could answer them, which seems so inadequate, is to point out how stone is shaped by water, drop by transparent, short-lived drop. Water transforms rock as no tidal wave ever could. And for reasons beyond our understanding, that is how the Messiah has decided to come for now. Not all at once, but steadily, drop by drop for millennia. And every time someone lives as he lived by loving as he loved, another drop falls. For some people, it's not enough. For others, it is a way of life. And if you can accept this, then you are indeed very blessed for not taking offence at Jesus Christ and his saving grace. Let's pray. Loving God, we want to acknowledge before you today that at times many of us share the frustrations of John. We long for you to make yourself known to the masses, to demonstrate unequivocally your power, your might, your love but we humbly recognise that we are not God. You and you alone know how you want to make yourself known and we are deeply privileged that a part, a significant part of your plan to reveal yourself is through us, through the small acts of mercy you can display to the world through us. Lord, help us to accept your ways, to live with the mystery and to enthusiastically play our part in seeing your kingdom established. This new year, would you prompt us to know what you are asking of us, what changes we can make in our lives to better reflect your glory? How can we contribute to the steady drip of mercy you continue to bless this world with? And as we wrap up Christmas, may we fully embrace the Christ child, the one we have all been waiting for. And may we live lives that are transformed by his plan for the world. Amen.